Welcome to another Creative Spin Podcast. And today, I have two good friends. The one, the only, this is a joke that's going yeah, on. Oh I don't know if you've seen it, but the one, the only, the, the, the most amazing. Old, the, right? No, mm-hmm. let's not call it. Listen, I've never said that. Okay, probably once or twice. Oh. But. <laughs> okay, I'm getting in trouble. It's like 30 seconds in. Um, today, we're going to, uh, me, me and my partner in crime. We'll be uh, talking to someone about some creative writing. Yeah, sure. Some creative spin. It's got to be a creative writing, hey, of course. Listen, there's right? a spin to it. <laughs> so um, we'll be talking about how this all started, how this is going, plans for the future. If you can say anything, I'm not sure. Mm. Mm, nah. We'll just keep on going. This will be a nice conversation. He's, um, he's a guest and he's a friend and a colleague. Yes. So <laughs> this should be an interesting conversation. So let's hit that intro and get back. Today's podcast is brought to you by Workplace One, a company offering boutique private offices, co-working spaces, and virtual office solutions, as well as meeting rooms in the best neighborhoods of Toronto and Kitchener-Waterloo. Ideal for entrepreneurs, companies, and passionate business people. Workplace One is where you want to be with your business. For more information, go over to WorkplaceOne.com. <laughs> so, Anna. Hi. You brought your colleague today. Yes, I can did. You, the one and only Anthony Tsa. To us? <laughs> uh, Anthony, I'm so welcome. happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Anthony, thank you for being here. Um, you know that besides being a colleague and a very good friend, I am your fan. I admire you since the very first day. I, I, it's funny. I did not know Anthony personally when he published Barnacle Love. This I one, met uh, you at York University. I don't know if you recall yes, that. Yes. yes. Even though we went to high school together. The same high school, right? That's, that's kind of that's crazy. weird. Isn't yeah, it? Yeah. And now you're teaching in the same high school, which is even weirder. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. <laughs> so I remember that when um, when this book, it was a friend of mine when I was at the other school who brought me Barnacle Love and said, you know, by the way, Anthony Tsai is a teacher um, and he works for our board. And I, I fell in love with, with Barnacle Love. And then I met you at York University and it just uh, I started there. So thank you for being here thank and uh, for for sharing. And you know, the, we, we've been we've been trying to get Anthony here for a while, but you know, his <laughs> schedule just didn't he's allow busy. it. You know, his people were talking to our I people. Know. We're trying to get I things, know. and it was kind of difficult. But we, you're here now, and and we thank you for that. Um, and I think the best way to start this off is is uh, I'm asking all of my uh, all of my guests is the origin story. Like, give us a little synopsis of of who Anthony is. Uh, oh, oh God! I was going to yeah. answer that question by saying Anthony shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> so let me uh, let and me just so an- like who Anthony is or or okay, I'll answer that question. Like, where I'm were still, you born? What, okay, what did you okay. like to do? Because that's a big question. And if you say Anthony, to me who Anthony author. is, I would say Anthony is still trying to figure out who Anthony is <laughs> Which at is 53. A good thing. Yeah. Um, but let me just say, I am the son of Portuguese immigrants who immigrated from the Azores. Uh, my father was one of the very first to come to Canada in 55. And uh, my mother uh, followed suit about six years after that. So they were really here at the very beginning of that community when there really wasn't much of a community. Of a community yeah. Yeah. It and, was like uh, a little village, really. Yes, and, it was a, and, and because of that, there were so many things that felt different for them, I think, because they were really, uh, they really felt isolated. So I am uh, first generation. I was born and raised in Toronto, and uh, this is my neighborhood. Uh, oh, you which were saying. Wa- yeah, <laughs> that, which is the kind of cradle of the Portuguese immigrant uh, during the 50s and 60s and 70s, and still for the most part, although a great deal of gentrification has happened in this neighborhood, yeah. still do you see the flavor of mm-hmm. those Portuguese homes. By the homes. way, for those who you, of you do, that don't know where we are, we're on Queen West here in yes. Toronto, so this yes. is the area where, where you yeah, grew up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so um, grew up like, I guess, every other Portuguese kid in the neighborhood, except I didn't look Portuguese. <laughs> that is true. I was blonde, I was blue-eyed, and 
for the most part, I didn't feel it either. And I know that sounds kind of strange, but... But you didn't have uh, friends that were Portuguese? All or? of my friends were all Portuguese. All of your friends, okay. But they were all dark eye, dark hair, dark skin. So you were the outsider. I was the, <laughs> I was the anomaly. Uh, and for many years thought that there must have been some kind of foul play with my mother and <laughs> the milkman or something. I don't know. Um, no, until I realized that, you know, I saw pictures of my dad who was younger and was also blue-eyed and mm-hmm. blonde-haired. My, my dad has also blue eyes and blonde but hair. But it so. wasn't the norm. No, no it, it's not. It it's certainly not, no. wasn't the norm. And uh, my mom, who was just absolutely beautiful and olive skin and dark hair and brown eyes, I remember she used to say to me when, when she'd pull me along in the stroller how everyone just assumed she was the caregiver mm. as opposed to the mother. Your the mother. mother. So it was, um, I, you know, and there were other factors that made me feel so much more marginalized than I mm-hmm. think the average Portuguese kid did in the neighborhood but yes this was my home this was my family and that's where I grew up and and the result of that Portuguese-ness meant that uh, you know my dad had and my mom had dreams for me and those dreams did not entail a world of art or design or creativity it's interesting because that was always an issue within uh, our culture Uh, I felt it as well like when I was drawing, my my mom would just say, you know, there you are, uh, ruining some wasting more paper. paper yeah, yes. just wasting paper, you know. Yeah. And they they didn't see the art as as something that you could actually do something with. No, and I, you know, I I told the story recently that that I hadn't shared with many people. I remember being in grade twelve, uh, sorry, grade thirteen, and I had applied, and one of the places I had applied to was OCAD. And I remember I worked a great, very hard to get my portfolio ready for my big interview. And I went to the interview and all was good. And I remember in May, I think this was quite a while ago, I received my acceptance to OCAD. And I remember feeling so overjoyed. And I remember folding that acceptance and stuffing it between my mattress. And then about two weeks later, I got this uh, acceptance from the University of Toronto, hmm. St. George campus, with this big embossed <laughs> coat of arms. And it said that I had been accepted to... Uh, to Hogwarts. Yes. No, no, sorry. To yes. <laughs> um, and I remember that day. I remember that day walking downstairs to the basement where my father sat. And I remember handing him that acceptance letter and I I can still see him put on his reading glasses and reading it and then getting up and leaving because he was so emotional and and overwhelmed but I also remember walking up the stairs from the basement saying to myself in my head over and over again I did the right thing I did the right thing I did the right thing so where was your heart I did the right thing for him Mm -hmm. Mm. And I think that's kind of that generation, that time, there was a great deal of pressure to fulfill the dreams, not necessarily that you had, but the ones exactly. that your parents sacrificed was, so much. It was, to. There was a lot of those values going on. Oh, right? yeah. Uh, well, values is a kind way of putting mm-hmm. it. Sometimes it was... Uh, bribery (laughs) sometimes it was uh i mean there was no option right i mean that's not why they came to this country for me to draw pictures yeah exactly um that is not why they came i could be a doctor i could be a lawyer and after my father saw an episode of the brady bunch i could be an architect (laughs) because he liked the house they lived and they had a maid uh so he thought that would be really fantastic as well. I mean, but we need to understand where they were coming from. Of too, course. Right? Right. I mean, yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. you know, coming yeah. from such poverty yes. back in the day in Portugal, I mean, it's, it, I th- one would assume that it's, it's obvious that you come into a new country, you just want to make money for the sense of having that security for yourself and for your children. And right? show up. And, and and those uh, <laughs> careers were meant that. You made it in life. Yeah, there was yes. always that pride. That, right. that pride yeah. to you show made off. It. Yeah, you're you right. You're right. Well, but the, but yeah. see, this is where I take a more sinister turn. <laughs> uh, um, it didn't only show that that I had made it. It showed that my 
Baby parents exactly. had yeah. done everything right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so now, listen. I, I I say this story without any regret. Mm-hmm. No regret whatsoever, because I loved being a. I loved going to the university. But I love I, listening to these stories of the what ifs. The yeah. what ifs. Yes. <laughs> yeah. These so, are really good. And the nice thing about the what ifs is, what if all of a sudden, twenty years later, you still get to fulfill the dream of being Actually. creative. Yeah. And manage somehow to put food on the table too. <laughs> so uh, that's an important. So part. that's yeah. an important part of uh, of the whole thing. But yeah, so that's where it all came from. Mm-hmm. That's a, a little taste of who I am. Because I know you, and I know a little bit of your story. You sort of put that away, though, like aside. I would say um, for a few years, because the creative writing aspect, you only look at it when you're already a teacher and. A few years after uh, finishing university, right? Like, right. So I think I had been teaching about 15 years. Yeah. I never, I was an English teacher, still am. Loved fiction, loved the world of words, the play of words, the creativity of it. Um, were you an avid reader? Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Books were my world. Books were my escape. Um, yeah. Because also growing up in that kind of family where certain social issues reared their ugly head. Uh, My father uh, took to drinking, Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a tumultuous time growing up. And so my favorite place was Sanderson Library here on the corner of Bathurst and Dundas. And Sanderson Library and the librarians there afforded me books that could show me that my family wasn't so far up from the families in these Mm -hmm. worlds, but it also gave me the opportunity to explore different families and different worlds, and I can escape into those and ask that same question, what if? But yeah, books were a very, very big part of growing up. You then become an English teacher. You teach... You teach English? You be- 15 years 15 teach years. English. I finally have a sabbatical, and I I have this whole year off, and I don't know what I'm going to do. I had this idea that I was going to travel through China and India, and I remember that first day, the day after Labor Day, when I'm supposed to be working, but I'm beginning this venture, and I look at my wife at the in the kitchen with my three boys, age five, three, one and a half, and I turned to my wife and I said, we're not going anywhere, are we? And she said, no, we're not going anywhere with these guys. Uh, And I'm, you know, and so I thought, you know what? I'm going to stay at home and I'm going to be the best dad these kids have ever had, you know. And that lasted about two weeks. And my wife said, get the hell out of the house. You better get out of here. And so I I actually enrolled at OCAD. And that's where I took up painting and writing and that became the very beginning of my first book, Barnacle Love. Interesting. What inspired you at that point to write Barnacle Love? Was it did was you it the take... spark that you were that that kind of came from going to back to OCAD and trying these these things that you always wanted to do? I guess you know what the spark. It's an interesting question. I think you know I started taking some creative writing classes. I mean, I used to love write, reading books. I didn't know the first thing about writing a book. It's two different beasts. It's a very yeah. different beast. And so I kept on hearing this adage, you know, write what you know, write what you know. So I thought, okay. And I also kept on hearing in my mind um, how difficult the publishing was, how di- how how um, competitive it was to actually get published, to get recognized, to get noticed, unless you had a story that hadn't been told. Now, I'm a firm believer that there is no story that has never been told. Mm -hmm. It just needs to be told in a different way. Different angle. And really, no one in this country, a land of immigrants, had ever told the story of the Portuguese immigrant. Mm -hmm. And there are subtleties and differences. Sure, there are commonalities Mm -hmm. between all uh, ethnic diversities, but there are certain things that are that just, makes us Portuguese. Yes, that <laughs> makes us who we are. Um, so, uh, and that's what I did. That's how I ventured into Barnacle Love. I thought, okay, I'm going to write what you know. I'm going to use my mom, and I'm going to use my dad, and I'm going to use me and my sister, and I'm going to create this family, and I'm going to. Yet it's not an autobiography. No, it's not. No, <laughs> no because what happens is that you begin to realize mm. that your actual story is a lot 
it's not as exciting <laughs> as you would like it to be. Mm -hmm. And the world of fiction, yes, else yes, you, right? and yeah. how do you make that different? And so you start tweaking the story and changing it, and before you know it, um, it becomes a very different thing, an entity all in its own. Mm -hmm. I remember when I first, we were going to put this book to bed, and I turned to my editor at one point, this was over the phone, and I said, oh, Martha, I'm so happy that we're done. So can I just confess one thing <laughs> and then we'll move on? She goes, sure, what is it? She goes, I said, um, okay, so my father's name was Manuel and my mother's name was Georgina and my sister's name was Trzinia and I am Anthony, but I called him Antonio, Antonio in the novel. So now that it's all done, let me change the names. Let me have Joe, Eduarda. <laughs> you know, like, let me just change, go, go for the change names. the names. And, uh, and there was dead silence on the phone. And she said to me, she goes, how would you feel if we kept them? And I said, can I ask why? She says, well... I've lived with you in this book for two years, and I can't imagine them having any other Not names any. than what you gave them. And if you're comfortable with it, are you comfortable with it? And I said, you know what, Martha, it's funny you say that, because although they share the names of my family members, they have ceased to be those people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They've taken on fictional lives of their own, and so I'm quite comfortable. I just thought you wouldn't be. And so we left all of those names and continued that family saga in my second book, Kicking the Sky. I, yes, and 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 Kicking the Sky. Um, I, I told you at the time you you made me question my myself because I I was oh, born geez, here. Phones. You leave your phones. I goodness. know. I was born in in it's Toronto, but moved to Portugal when I was five. So I mm. lost the language. I lost my connection to Canada and. Coming back to grade nine, Canada was, in a way, I was part of that wave of immigrants, right? That was sort of from coming, the 80s, yeah. It, it coming to a strange land, right? And I found my voice in Kicking the Sky, even mm. though it's a different era, different time. But I remember my dad talking about Emmanuel Jacks. And when you told me that this was going to be the book and that you were going to... I feel and I agree with you that that was the moment our community gained a voice in the sense yes. of identity. Um, yes. And But I have to say that you do it in a way that you question um, taboos in our community, in our culture. You... I was tired sometimes because I, I was one of those kids running, you know, through, through the alleyways and on, on the rooftops. And I, I'm like, I'm one of these kids. I want to... And, and it was as I was reading your book, I was and, and I get into it, and they sometimes scare me because I forget that the world exists around me, right? But why why did you choose? Was it because you felt like you had to give this voice? You had to tell the world that this is the moment when we became a community, but we also lost our innocence. I think that day. I think we also need to kind of like explain mm -hmm. a little bit because we have viewers from a yes. lot yeah. all over so the I'm world. So, yeah. so a little, so, a little yeah. preview of, okay. of what so it was little, based on. A little summary. Kicking the Sky is based on the real-life murder, 1977 murder of a young 12-year-old shoeshine boy on Young Street who was lured away with the promise of moving some uh, photo equipment for $35, and um, subsequently he was beaten and raped by three men and then uh, drowned in a kitchen sink uh, and then put on a rooftop dead, and the men escaped and uh, so it's it's it centers around that pivotal murder mm -hmm. in Toronto where Toronto Toronto's moniker of Toronto the good was challenged for the first time. Yeah. It ceased to be that place and the city's history changed as a result of that murder. And a community found its voice. Yeah. And politicians took notice and all of these things happened. So that's really the crux of the novel. That being said, the novel is not about the murder. Exactly. The yeah. novel is about how a few young boys and some of the adults in their lives react to the murder, to what's happened to Basically them. Basically the ripple effect. It's the that. ripple effect. Yeah. And it goes beyond just the Portuguese community. It goes to the whole city, to mm -hmm. the whole sense of who are we, why are we, um, why are we not safe in our city. Yeah. 
what is this Toronto? What is this Toronto? It mm -hmm. questions that. So that's that's essentially mm -hmm. what the that's essentially the background of the book. Mm -hmm. Now back to your question, Anna. Uh, it's twofold. So the first thing is there was real interest by my publishing house to look at a very short story called The Shoeshine Boy in my first mm -hmm. book and taking that story and expanding it into a full-length novel simply because it was a story that was so big yet had not been explored in Canadian literature. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, remember trying to find a new story, trying to find a new angle, something that's been never been done before. And I liked that idea, particularly because I was that age when that it affected happened. you. you and it affected it. me very much so. And it affected my family in a way and my teachers and my school and my neighborhood and these laneways just outside these windows. Because you were more or less that age as well. At exactly that time. right. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I figured if someone is going to tell that story, it's got to be me. And uh, and I knew what it was to be a kid of immigrant parents living in downtown Toronto and, and feeling to a certain extent like you weren't getting an even shake. Mm -hmm. like, like, there, like there were certain things that automatically you were already getting checked off for that, yeah. you yeah. know, that were disadvantaging you. And I, uh, I was very cognizant of that. And so I wanted to reveal, as someone put it, you opened up the windows and the doors to my Portuguese household, and I don't like you for doing that. <laughs> mm. And yet, that's what I liked about that's, doing writing the book. That's what I loved. Yes. That's, and, and, and I know that when I was uh, talking, when I actually went to present your book, and, and you were a guest speaker at uh, one of the clubs, Casa dos Açores, I tried, without wanting to spoil what the book was all about, I tried bringing that up. I said, you know what? It, it's it's these questions that we don't want to talk no. about. It's this, that everybody knows it's and a, everybody right. talks but about. But it's also this division within the community that occurred around this because all of a sudden you have within the community its own division as well. And you, yes. and it becomes two, especially two groups that become very, you know, uh, oh, mainland. It's the different Azers. opinions. No, but it, it does come out, at least in, that's my reading of it. And, and I... And I was so glad that you did that because I I love um, I love questioning what no one wants to talk. I love bringing up what no one wants to talk about the the, the so-called taboos or whatever you wanna, however you wanna call them. But you, I feel like you completed that voice for the community with with kicking the sky. And then thank you, but I I didn't want that burden. But continue. <laughs> well. My opinion. <laughs> some, yeah. some responsibility on it. Then Let's we go. go to Africa, and man, yeah, this oh adventure man. I want I want to know uh, oh a, a lot more about because children of the this moon. must have been an interesting one for you. You really yeah. decided to okay. Now I want to go somewhere else. Yeah, I did. I um, I mean, I wrote two books that were very Toronto centric, very immigrant centric. Yeah, um, and I loved inhabiting those worlds. Don't get me wrong. But I'm also very um, conscious of the fact that writers sometimes get get cat pigeonholed, get comfortable, comfortable, yeah. really like to do this one thing and then don't move away from it. And that's not to deny the fact that they continue to do a wonderful mm -hmm, job at that. For sure. And I probably will go back and revisit this world that I grew up in. But I wanted to stretch. I wanted to move a little further afield. I mean quite further mm -hmm. afield, mm -hmm. uh, and set my next novel in Mozambique and in Tanzania. But I, I, I didn't want the constraints and the burden and the responsibility of trying to represent my community mm -hmm. yet again. Mm -hmm. I think it's important that someone else do that now if they see it in a different way, if they have a, 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 a different voice about it. But for the most part, I wanted to explore another part still of a Portuguese heritage, mm -hmm. but one further away from me. Would you say you were looking for different challenges, bigger challenges probably? Uh, yes, I, I wanted to. So, you know, we talked about write what you know. I did that and I did it quite successfully. And I, I mean, I did it quite successfully because I'm pleased with my work and it garnered, garnered certain critical acclaim, both books. 
I needed to do something else and wondered if I could do something else. So stepping outside of that comfort yeah, zone. Yeah, yeah, because I think thing? that's what artists do. And mm -hmm. that's that's what we do. We constantly are looking for that something else, something to satisfy us in a way. I mean, if you finish a book like Barnacle Love and you feel completely satisfied with your work, why would I do it again? Yeah, it would just be repeating it. Uh, right, yeah. I mean... So taking a chance, maybe it's not as successful, maybe it doesn't sell enough copies, maybe it doesn't get listed for the awards, but the reward Your of putting reward. my neck out there yeah. and being rewarded with something that I'm very proud of, that people come to me and say, I cannot believe you wrote that. I felt like I was there. Uh -huh. I understand those characters because my uncle, my aunt, my grandfather, and that meant a great deal to me. I had to read it twice. I told you at the time. I read it twice. And and there are, as you can see, there's still a bookmark there. Like There are certain passages that I go to. When you said Children of the Moon, I said albinos. Because I, you know my connection to Africa. And I said, wow. <laughs> so this is, this is the voice now. And I feel like you do... I feel like you do give a voice to albinos. That's what the, that's what they're known uh, as in Africa. Uh, you know, and they're they're known as children, uh, of, children the of the moon. That right? is in some countries. In some countries, and I, I was not expecting. Um, I was not expecting a story about colonial, because because at some point that's what you're telling me, right? Colonial Portuguese Mozambique, to be. It, usually what I read about Mozambique, whether it's fiction or not, it's, it's harsh, it does not interest me, it's yes. very historical. You bring poetry to that without being poetry, with fiction. Yes. And I've, the first time when I finished, I had, I, I was like, I, it's like I didn't read it, it's like I missed so many points, I need to go back. And I felt... A connection to Africa, and I've never been to Africa, but I have so many friends of mine that are, and I mean, I did African studies, and and all of a sudden, I j you just brought um, this corner of the Portuguese Africa out again, not not painting a lot of color. You you bring out what it was uh, to live in Africa, to go through the atrocities that especially um, albinos go through. But yet there is that um, hidden voice there that speaks to me at a different level. And I, I just need to commend you for that. It Thank was, you. It was, uh, yeah, this book is, is outstanding. I it was a challenge say. simply and because I didn't want, mm -hmm. as you rightly said, I mean, I could write a war story. Exactly. And I mean, there's so many out there. Wow. You know, <laughs> how many have I read? Yeah. And yet none of them have ever satisfied no. me. Because it feels so uh, flat. Mm -hmm. For me, even in war, there needs to be a sense of humanity. Yes. Of, of beauty, of, of compassion. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to capture that. The ugliness of it we know goes without it. saying. Yeah, and I, I show, I think, a great deal of restraint. I don't go over I don't go into the details. No. I let the reader imagine just how horrific that war could be. What fascinated me was in the midst of this war, could there be love? Could there be a connection between two people mm -hmm. who didn't feel like they belonged? Yeah. And I was fascinated with people with albinism. I was fascinated with their plight and what's happening with them in Africa. I found it horrendous when yes. I read an article in the National Geographic. Because up to that point, I was writing a story that was war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A colonial war, and I wasn't satisfied. Then it becomes human. And then it becomes human when you add this, yeah, this but element. Colorful like that. And yes. so once I finished reading that book, I said, okay, now I understand this yes. culture. It, it was that color that it was missing from any other story that I found in Children of the Moon. When, when you're it. there, run me through the process. Like when you're talking to people, when you're, uh, you know, meeting these children, when you're meeting their families, do they know? You're a writer. You're going to write about them. Like how I do think you, they how, know. How do I don't. Yeah, I, uh, like I think they you, know. I don't think they quite understand. Okay. Um, 
But is it because of the lack of education that they might well, have? Well, ma many of these children mm -hmm. that I'm working with yeah. are in very rural areas. There yeah. aren't, you know, there is no education, and really the healers or what Western people call mm -hmm. the the medicine men or the yeah, yeah. you know. Um, but the healers have a great deal of control over society, over those villages. Yeah. Over the um, information. Over that the information that, that they, they get. get. Yeah. So if they say to them that people with albinism hold a magical power, power then, uh, and if those healers are willing to pay a top dollar price for a piece of their hair, mm. a finger, Oof. an arm, then people this are willing. This still goes on today. Oh, yes, it goes oh, on today. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's yeah. still going on today. And that's why I think your book came at the right time. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it, it, we needed Children of the Moon. To did, come out about that. Did, did you feel that, did you, is the journalist, in, I don't want to spoil it, but is the journalist in Children of the Moon a little bit of you doing I research? I think so. I think Seraphim mm -hmm. is a bit of me, yeah. uh, the Brazilian journalist who is mm -hmm. there to document Poe's life and her yeah. story. And I, and I think that there's a part of the, uh, the author in that story mm -hmm. because he's, he's also uh, treading a very delicate line mm -hmm. about fact and fiction. And I think as a writer, I am as well. Uh, how do you record a story that is not mm -hmm. your lived experience? Yeah. I am not a, a person of color. I do not have albinism. Mm -hmm. I am, you know, um, how do you tell that story as honestly, as purely as you can? Mm -hmm. So those concerns that I have as a writer yeah. are imbued in the character of Seraphim yes, and he shares those same yeah. concerns. But, you know, back to your question, Jamie, um, how do you approach this? I, with a certain arrogance, because I called uh, Peter Ash, who is the CEO of Under the Same Sun, which is a, an organization that helps people with albinism. He okay. himself uh, has albinism. And uh, they're in Burnaby, British Columbia. And I called him and I spoke to him for an hour. And he's like, but why are you calling? <laughs> and, uh, and I said, because you're taking me. And he said, what? I go, this, because I want to go. You're going to take me to Tanzania the next time you go. And he said, why should I take you? And I said, because it's such an incredible story and it's not reaching the right people. And maybe if it's told through fiction, maybe there will be a readership that will take notice and, mm -hmm. and perhaps and understand and that understand problem. That but you problem. need to be there to understand yes. that Yes, so I went to Africa that first time to Tanzania with Peter Ash. Um, How was that adventure? Wow. I was that going was, to say stories you want to share with was, us. That was wild. Give us a, give us a good but, story. Uh, give us a good story. Uh, you know, I went there with this list, like a journalist, like Seraphim, <laughs> with a list of all these questions that I was going to ask these parents, these children that I was going to interview. You know that I didn't ask one question? I, that's why I ask, because I see a lot of you in Seraphim. I, I really do. <laughs> I didn't ask one yeah. question. Yeah. Because what was more important than me asking the questions was me sitting down and listening to whatever the story they wanted to tell me, to whatever aspect, small thing of life challenge that they experience day in, day out. The actual physical issues that they had as a result of being attacked, the issues that they felt about being ostracized by their community or running away from their community to save their children because they were being hunted, those all took a back seat because I could see it in their eyes mm -hmm. and in their faces and in their stories. I didn't have to ask any questions. Was that uh -huh. the moment when Paul was born? I have, I have that to is the moment. Paul. That is the moment <laughs> when Paul was born. Yeah, yeah. when Paul was born. Yeah. yeah. And I met a particular woman who just walked into the room. And I knew she was an older woman, mm -hmm. a much older woman which is very strange, very rare for someone with albinism to reach the age of 60 or mm -hmm. 70 years old. Most of them die of skin cancer yeah, by yeah. the age of 20 or so <laughs> because they don't protect their skin. Um, so incredible to see this woman, and she became my heroine. Yeah, she was, she was remarkable. So I'm still waiting for the story. 
Yeah. <laughs> oh God, there are so many stories. So many stories. I can't tell you. I'll, I'll tell you this. What was the biggest? Okay, let me let me help you then. What was the biggest shock? Like something that you were really not expecting, and you're like, wow, okay, so this is happening. Because <laughs> um, I'm sure. I mean, going across all culturally, the of course, it was so diverse, so different from what I understood. But there was so much color. There was so much laughter. Uh, there was lots of food and joy and music. Yes, there was poverty. But they were happy yeah, in the way. They didn't have, way, so so right? poverty in the sense that we would call it poverty. But they were fine. But they did with less. Mm -hmm. And they did well with less. Um, and I'll tell you this. It got very bad for me because after spending those five weeks there and coming home it's another shock right yeah and that one i didn't take too well hmm. so interesting i came home to my wife and my three boys and my nice home and you know and my car and all the little things that we all take the granted. little things that i've been working my whole life for and i have attained and I just thought it was a crock of shit. Like, I just thought it was Yeah. Do awful. you Do all we really sudden. need all of this? How right? did I get to this place? Who am I? Is this what I signed up for? And my children and my wife and my family, is this really what I wanted? And, and it, it led me into a very quick spiral out of myself. Uh, so much so that after about, I'd say about three months, it caused such tension that, uh, that I had to go speak to someone about it to try to figure out why it was I felt culpable. But you're not the first person I hear uh, talking about this uh, side of, of, of things. When, when you go into a country that's underdeveloped, that is poor, and to see the people there and how they live. And then a lot of people go through what you went through because it's a shock. It's, it's, it's literally two different worlds, if you look at it. It's, it's, it's very difficult to imagine, to imagine in, in my understanding of the way I live, that I have everything, but I didn't have half of, of what, they had. what they had. Yeah. And that's a very difficult thing to come to terms with. One of those things, yeah. So, and I wasn't prepared for that. I have to say I was not prepared for that. Wow. So Africa is this beast that conquers you without you even noticing. Of course, and it will always remain that way. But it's a beast in the sense that a Western, a Western point of view has created. Heart of darkness? Yes, it's, it's, uh, it's what we imagine. Yeah. But it's not that place. As I said, you know, um, oh, there was song and there was music and there was real affection and a sense of kinship. I thought of myself growing up on Palmerston Avenue where I lived in this house and my grandmother lived in that house, two houses down, and my uncle lived across the street. <laughs> and we all kind of grew up as a village. And, you know, I'd walk into these villages and realize that Everyone was related to everyone else. And you can fight and quarrel. But the minute someone, one of your own, was near you, you protected them like there was no tomorrow. And everyone took turns. You know, it takes a village. Mm -hmm. Everyone took turns raising those children and raising that next generation. And it's the had, tribal mentality. Yes, right? and we had kind of lost. I, I felt like I had mm -hmm. lost touch with that. Are there any more stories that remain untold from from Africa? the trips? Oh, I think it's vast. Um, would I do it? I don't know. Again, mm. uh, I never like getting comfortable mm -hmm. with one story. Uh, you know, I I always feel like I could probably write something more to this. I could probably do another book completely, like two two books. But the reality is there's something really beautiful about finishing a book and finishing it in a way that is unfinished, if you understand mm -hmm. what I'm saying, yeah. to invite the reader in so that they can finish the story themselves. 
I think that's why I had to re to read it twice. I, I believe that's what it was. It, there was so much that I, I was like, okay, uh, where what now? Where do I go now? Mm -hmm. And I became part of. Uh, you have that in me. I, I become part of your stories <laughs> for some reason. Um, but yeah, I felt I felt like you made me see the Africa I never. I never, I never met, I never saw. Right? And, and you yeah. know what, I, and I would say, you know, in terms of creativity and design and... <laughs> yeah, that's where I was You know, one of it. these things about writing for me is some of the most, some of the strongest parts of my writing, or I, what I hope are the strongest parts of my writing, are the white blanks, are the spaces Definitely. that I don't write about, are the spaces that I allow the reader to, to infer, fill in. to fill in themselves, mm -hmm. to make it their own. And I think that's, you know, one of the strengths of the world of design is when we do that, is when yep. we say, this is not what I'm selling you. This is the idea. This is the idea, and you have to fit the idea into your world, into your Sorry. understanding of that world. And I think that's the best kind of advertisement. That's the best mm -hmm. kind of marketing. That's the best kind of book when I you've so. actually allowed the participant to feel like they have a vested interest in the product, in the story. 100%. I now, agree. Now, aside from the writing, the covers are very interesting to me, obviously, as yes. an artist. How much involvement uh, did you have in these I'm going to be honest with you. I have no involvement because I was initially promised that I'd have tons of involvement. In mm. fact, my editor said, oh, they're going to give you four jackets and you get to choose them. <laughs> and it, like that never <laughs> happened. I will say this, though. For my first book, Barnacle Love, I remember I was... But did you give the ideas at least of what you wanted no. to do? No. What they do is the designers, in this case, Terry Nemo. Terry Nemo, Terry Nemo, uh, Scott Richardson. Um, so Terry Nemo gets a copy of the book. She reads the book. And she actually... The so book this designers, is her interpretation Yes, the book designers book. will pick something out and they'll run away with it. So my very first book, when they sent me the cover, I was mini-golfing with my children in Niagara <laughs> Falls. And it's my first book. I'm so excited to see this cover. And I'm just waiting for the appointment where I'm going to go see the four covers to choose from. Instead, I get this email from my editor that says, here's your cover. I hope you like it. One single. One. <laughs> and I open it up. And I just like, you know, it came up slowly. <laughs> and I hated it. And I just, it was in a sepia tone and it looked, it looked, you know, it looked what I thought it would look like. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I didn't want, and I was disappointed in that. You wanted to be surprised. I wanted to be surprised. I wanted someone to see this as a modern look at an immigrant story as opposed to something that was tradition, you know, the sepia tone, uh, some some ruffled mm -hmm. old newspapers on the jacket. Like, I didn't want that. Yeah. And so I said to my agent, uh, to my uh, editor, I said, uh, she said, what do you think? I said, it's very nice. She goes, nice doesn't cut it. <laughs> and she said, you're not thrilled, are you? You can be honest with me. I said, Martha, I'm just, I, I. and she goes, you know what? I'm not either. Okay. Let's take it back. And then Terry came up with this. And, you know, I loved the idea that of a, a young blonde boy holding up a fish, you know, the sacrificial fish. The, yeah, it said a lot. It was beautifully modern. The color popped. It was really nice. Yeah. And I thought this Very is a good. fantastic cover. So that was great. And it got translated, I might say, into Portuguese. Yes, it did. Terra Nova. Terra Nova. Yeah. Yes. Now, this cover, <laughs> of course... They focused, the designer focused on the laneways, and this was a really special, special cover. I have to say that I wasn't a big fan of this cover in many I respects. Um, this was done, it, although it looks like a Toronto alley, an artist from Montreal was commissioned, and listen, publishing houses don't do this often. They commissioned an artist to design the landscape of a laneway this one in Montreal, but it looks so much like the one. Yeah. I was going to say, can we yeah. walk there? Right yes, now? <laughs> I know we could. Um, and they used a special paper. It was all done, you know, in a very special way. A great deal of attention was paid to it, uh, and it got terrific—a terrific response. It was Th small things like I suggested this. 
So you see the G. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the kicking. The, the kicking, kicking. The G yeah. at the end is just one notch up. It wasn't. And I was the one who suggested, look, what do you think if we just kind of playfully yeah. popped up Spit that G? Up. Yeah. So small things like this. Terry Nemo what comes back. Choice? Going back to this one. Hold on. Deckle Edge. Yes. Well, yeah. Did you choose that? No. They chose. No, okay. they chose the Deckle Edge, which I actually always liked in books. I love it. I like because it. it. That's makes why it I'm easier. Yeah. It makes it easier to turn the page. But a Deckle Edge has uh, a, a certain quality, this kind of mm-hmm. rawness to it. And I think that's what they were going for. That's why everything is very matte. If you can feel the cover, yeah, it is. doesn't feel like a... Yeah. It's It's got a... A, te- a waxy texture to it and then you got this deckle edge it was absolutely beautiful i loved it uh and then terry nemo comes back with this one and i have to say this was that the a- first choice right away no it was a total surprise and i loved it uh so what happened was that my editor was saying that she was playing with the idea of an a child's hands playing with an elephant carving oh mm. and you read it so you would know yeah. what that means and I thought, oh, that's really beautiful. Oh, that's really yes. beautiful. So two weeks later, when I get the JPEG for this and I open it up on my computer, I'm going, where the hell's the elephant? <laughs> um, so, and yet, and yet, I loved it. I loved it from the minute that I saw it. These are very kind of primitive, strung beads. Mm-hmm. Yep. They left one bead. They did small things. Terry did small things like the embossing in the front cover, which, you know, no one in public, like they don't take. It's the details. It's the, it's the details. And my, my editor is particular about font, selection of font, selection of page, selection of size of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that stuff. Everything is given needs a, to feel yes, right. Yes, it just has to feel like the right package. Yeah. Very proud of the way all of it. But them we are. also have on the cover inside another surprise that you were mentioning and that I noticed. That, no, no, that, the hard cover. There you yeah, go. the embossed. Yeah, that's what he was saying. Yeah, that's that it's embossed. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that's okay. So to, to see that repetition Petition, embossed, okay. to see that every time you yeah, turn, there's that there too. are the three dots, yeah. you know, throughout, spattered throughout. It's really kind of beautiful that they take yeah. that much. And, you know, they should. They should. They Absolutely, should because not only does it reflect the writer's work, but you are asking people to pay $32 or $28. Or, and, and in this time of day and age where people yeah. want everything free and cheap and there has <laughs> to be streamed, you got to have something that people want to keep and hold in their hands. Yeah, for sure. Last question I want to give you. If somebody out there is thinking about writing, but is, uh, I don't know, I don't know if I can write, what's your advice? Hold on. Narrow it down. Okay. Yeah. Get, get, I, I, no, get I just, his wife to kick him out no, of the no, house. No, I just got, I just got, <laughs> Go. let's rework this question. Yeah. Anthony, if you were able to give the 21-year-old Anthony an advice regarding writing, what would it be? You know, you would think that it would say to that 21-year-old Anthony, start younger. Um, Just do it. I wouldn't. I think that to be, and I see a lot of now 26-year-old, 28-year-old writers, and they write what they know. They write about their own time and their own place, and it's wonderful. So do you value experience in life? I can't. You have to. I can't write about life if I haven't lived. I can't. It's almost like these life coaches out there that are 20 years old. I know. Like, (laughs) really? Um, Or asking a priest to give you marriage advice. Hey, I mean, was, I don't want to go that was there, my but no, that but, was my question. But that's a hard yeah, but, thing. Okay. That's a hard thing to do. How do you, as a young couple, you know, as Catholic, how do you, as a young couple, go and speak to your parish priest about marital advice? <laughs> it's true. Kind of, kind of, yeah. yeah. No experience you know there. Mm. So I guess what I'm saying is that you know, and and I get this question often, especially now that I'm coming towards the end of my book tour. Uh, I meet a lot of writers on the road. I was just in Calgary, you know, so. Um, are you, you know, the question inevitably between writers is what are you working on now? Mm-hmm. Like, you, you know, you've just put this one to bed and there are, I'm, I'm sure there are some writers who finish it, send it to their editors and the and next day wake up one. in the morning and start a new oh. one. 
<laughs> I'm sure that those yeah, crazy ever. people exist. <laughs> I give myself six months to a year before I start anything new. And the truth is, and I don't write every day. You know, I go to a lot of these places where there's workshops and writers will say, well, to be a serious writer, you need to work, you need to work at it every day, a lot, a certain, well, you know what? That's impossible in my life. I have a full-time career. Yeah. I have a young family. I have other, yeah. I just, and the other, the truth is I need to engage with the world if I'm going to write about it. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's really what's important. That's the advice that I would give. Live life, enjoy it, and write about something that you're excited mm -hmm. about and something that you understand, at least in this context, yeah. in this framework. I would hate a 27-year-old to write uh, a book about, you know, <laughs> what it's 60. like. Yes. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't say no. I wouldn't say no. I think if they have a fresh take on it, I think it that's fantastic. Yeah. It could work. It could work. But I think that there is something to be said about lived, lived experience. Mm. It, it, I think it just keeps things authentic. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. Do you that's have all. like a particular corner of the house you need to go to to no. write? Do you have one? <laughs> no. no. Way. I mean, I have my office where I yeah. do a bit of writing. I, mm. I like to, here's another thing. I like to go to a cafe. And I like to sit down. And I like to write and observe. You know, the other day I was... Um, I was seeing someone and they had just finished what they were eating on one of those very little flimsy paper plates. And I just couldn't stop watching her. And she took the paper plate and she folded it in half. And with the edge of it, she, <laughs> she picked her teeth. Oh, some things have to be done. Okay. Wow. Loved it. I had to write it down. I don't know if I'll ever use it. <laughs> or about two months ago, I was on book tour and I was, there was, woman was having French fries. I love people when they eat. I like observing. <laughs> she had, and she had the longest nails I've ever seen to a point, to a jagged point. And she was eating the French fries by harpooning them <laughs> with her nail. Never saw that. I've never seen it in my life. So something like that gets me so excited. I'm not eating besides As you. a writer. Because you're like, okay. Oh my God. I so I write it. that down. I may never use it. Okay, coffee, that's it. <laughs> but the idea that someone is capable of doing that in the real world is fascinating to me. And if I could... It's some, just that ammunition that it's you need. Little, right? Give like, that a little something to my writer, yeah, to my readers. And I like that. I like that part of the world. Well, I want to congratulate you on having this as an audiobook. Yes, they're all on audiobook. It's already available at the Toronto Public Library. Yes, we'll take care of also putting all of the links and, and every single place oh, that good. is uh, so available wanna, for you guys to check it out. I want to listen to it now. <laughs> and listen to it and read it and all of that. Anthony, thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you so much. I hope both. you enjoyed the conversation. Yes, it was great. It was and I uh, hope you're here next year for the next book. I, oh, next <laughs> year. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Artlist.io.